I wonder what comes into your mind when I say the word regret. Angelina Jolie once said of regret, I don't believe in regret. I feel everything leads us to where we are and we have to just jump forward, mean well, commit, and just see what happens. Well, that's got a very modern, optimistic, some might say idealistic view of regret. Let's take a different view, this time from the 19th century Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote, I see it all perfectly. There are two possible situations. One can either do this or that. My honest opinion and my friendly advice is this. Do it or do not do it. You will regret both. Well, that seems unnecessarily pessimistic to me. And anyway, is regret necessarily a bad thing? Our NIV translation of the Bible refers to regret seven times. On four occasions, it's used of God, twice in Genesis 6 and twice in 1 Samuel 15. On two occasions, it's used of the Apostle Paul, both in 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. Look those verses up if you are interested. And on one final occasion, it is used of King Jehoram, and this is what it says. Jehoram passed away to no one's regret. Well, just imagine the tributes at that man's funeral. But that final example aside, it appears that regret need not necessarily be negative. Regret is not necessarily wrong if one's regret is not so much about one's actions, but rather about the unintended consequences of one's actions. So a person might uh, be generous, and there's nothing wrong with being generous, of course, but they might regret that other people presume on their generosity. So regret can be a positive thing. But the kind of regret that we're looking at today is the unhelpful kind of regret. The kind of regret that keeps us from moving on, that holds us back, that prevents us from moving forwards. It's the kind of regret that springs from a failure of some sort. Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest are it might have been, said the American writer Kurt Vonnegut. Or as a fellow American author wrote, if only. Those must be the two saddest words in the world. In today's passage from John 21, we eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and his disciple Peter, who was at risk of succumbing to this kind of regret because he had failed spectacularly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, Peter had denied his Lord. And yes, all of the disciples had failed, but Peter fell the hardest. Peter fell spectacularly because he had boasted of his loyalty to Jesus. This very night you will all fall away on account of me, Jesus had said. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd 
and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They all said the same, which is what you would expect of them, isn't it? I certainly would, I think. But it was Peter who'd set the tone. Peter with his confident boast of loyalty. And of course, no one wanted to be outshone by Peter, so they all said the same. But he had failed dramatically. And now in John 21, the memory of his failure must have come rushing back to him. There was the charcoal fire, just like the fire around which he had warmed his hands and denied he even knew Jesus. There was Jesus calling him Simon, son of John. Not Peter, the rock, the new name he'd been given, but Simon, the name of the person he used to be. And then there was the threefold question. Not this time a threefold challenge about whether he was one of the Lord's disciples, but a threefold challenge about the kind of disciple he really was. There's an interesting thing taking place in the dialogue between Jesus and Peter here, and it's hidden by our NIV translation. There are two Greek words being used. Agapeo, which is typically a love with the mind and the will, and phileo, which is typically a love with emotion. And the conversation between Jesus and Peter goes somewhat like this. Jesus asked Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you love me with your mind and your will? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I have affection for you. Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you love me with your mind and your will? And Peter replies, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I love you with emotion, with affection. And then finally, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you have affection for me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I have affection for you. What an awkward conversation. Now, some commentators are keen to stress that these two words, agapeo and phileo, can be used interchangeably and we shouldn't make anything of their use in this passage in John 21. They will say, quite correctly, that both words are used of the Father's love for the Son, of Jesus' love for his disciples, of Jesus' love for Lazarus. But to go on from there and to say that therefore there's no significance in the change of words in this passage is, I think, to miss an obvious point. Let's imagine that you and I are having a conversation. You're sponsoring a cause and you say to me, you ask me, Roger, will you devote yourself to this cause? And I say, sure, I'll commit to it. Well, there might be a little question mark in the back of your mind. Why did he change the word there? And so 
Just to confirm that I've understood what you're asking, you ask again, Roger, will you devote yourself to this cause? And I say, sure, I'll commit to it. Well, the words devotion and commitment can be used interchangeably in many contexts. But the very fact that I've changed it twice would surely raise a red flag to you. You would surely want to know what it was about the word devotion that made me uncomfortable. Was it perhaps that there was something about putting my heart and soul into this project or cause that I wasn't prepared to give? There's something missing here in Peter's response. Peter feels unable to say in reply to Jesus, I agapeo you, I love you with will and mind. He can say, I love you with affection, but he's no longer willing to say, I have a resolute love for you. He can't say it because he said that in the past and he has failed spectacularly. So this is the Peter, this post-Calvary Peter, who is humble and he's hurting. He has failed Jesus and he doesn't want to do it again. He's not willing to say with boldness, with confidence, Lord, I'll never deny you again, because it's happened. This is a Peter who deeply regrets what he has done, deeply regrets being so confident, being so boastful. And he now needs to know that he is forgiven. He now needs to know that a fresh start is possible. Rita Snowden a missionary and author in the 1900s wrote, You ask me what forgiveness means? It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. Failure is never final with God. No matter how desperate our failure, no matter how deep-seated our shame, he can forgive us and renew us and use us again in his service. And this is what Peter needs to hear. Peter needs to know that he doesn't have to live in the long shadow of his regret for the rest of his life. So what does Jesus do? Firstly, in place of Peter's threefold failure, Jesus gives him a threefold mission or commission. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep and feed my sheep. Peter, you have a mission. Jesus is asking Peter to look after, to pastor the church. There are weak, immature, vulnerable lambs that need feeding. There are more mature sheep that need protection, that will wander off and need bringing back into the fold. And by the way, those sheep also need feeding. Jesus is calling Peter to pastor his church. Just imagine for a moment the kind of pastor that Peter could have been without this experience of failure and restoration. Just picture this hot-headed disciple and just imagine that he had been the one, he had been the only one to stand up for his master to stare down the authorities. Just imagine how he might have been 
with those late disciples who didn't share his courage, who didn't share his boldness. But he failed when his time of testing came. But here's the thing. If he could learn from his failure, if he could treat his failure as a teacher rather than an undertaker, then how much more effective could he be as a pastor? How much more sympathetic could he be with other people's weaknesses and failures as Jesus had been sympathetic and forgiving towards him in the view of his failure? Winston Churchill recalled the time he'd been forced to repeat a year at school. You mean you failed a year at school? Someone asked him. I never failed anything, he replied. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. Peter has an opportunity to get it right. He's not going to make great claims to be loyal and faithful in the future. He is learning to be honest and humble. We all make mistakes, don't we? Sometimes the consequences of those mistakes are unavoidable. But that doesn't mean we're going to be washed up for the rest of our lives. It doesn't mean we're going to be on the shelf, unusable for the rest of our lives. We can learn from those mistakes. We can move on from those mistakes. So we don't throw in the towel because of what's happened in the past. New beginnings are possible. Jesus gives us another chance of service. Secondly, Jesus opens a window to Peter on his final end. Jesus says, in effect, Peter, you can do it. Let me explain. Jesus says to him, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. In a very gentle way, Jesus is informing Peter that he too will suffer death by crucifixion. Now what's going on here? Because I imagine that a few moments ago, Peter was saying, yes, yes, another chance. And now he's saying, no, martyrdom. I mean, Jesus' words aren't exactly words of encouragement, are they? I bet you haven't got John 21 verse 18 on your fridge magnet. But in a bizarre kind of way, they are encouraging words. Because, for Peter at least, because Jesus is telling him that in the very way that Peter has failed in the past, he will, with God's help and God's strength, succeed in the future. He will stand up faithfully for Jesus in the days to come. He will be Peter, the rock that his name means. He will be the man of courage that he wanted to be before Calvary but wasn't. And some of us need to know that in the very ways in which we have failed God in the past, we will, with God's help, with God's strength, succeed in the future. 
Now we've realised that we can't do this thing in our own strength. Now we have learnt some humility, so to speak. And now we seek to do this thing in God's strength, with God's help. There's a second chance. Where we failed in the past, with God's help, we will succeed in the future. And instead of the humility that comes with failure, there will be glory to God through our success. And then thirdly, Jesus turns Peter's attention away from comparison with other people. You follow me. Peter notices that John is a little way behind them and listening to their conversation and apparently taking it all in because later on he's going to write about it in his gospel. And Peter wants to know if Jesus, if uh, John rather, will also be crucified. And Jesus says to him, mind your own business. Regret often has an element of comparison to it, doesn't it? If only I'd made that career choice, I could be in a beautiful, living in a beautiful house like her. If only I had focused, hadn't focused on rugby, I could be a Premier League footballer like him. If only we'd retired earlier, we could be enjoying wonderful holidays like them. If only, like him, like her, like them. But comparing ourselves to others is rarely helpful. Imagining what we may or may not have been is a fruitless waste of time. We don't know how things would have turned out if we'd made that choice instead of this one. And all that looking backwards to past choices and sideways to what others are doing takes us nowhere. The call to follow Jesus is a call forwards because Jesus is always going forwards. Remember those two saddest words? If only. So don't compare yourself to other people. Don't envy their blessings or the path that their choices have taken them on. You have your own path. You must follow that path, wherever that path leads. That path may be through a land that is plentiful, where God's streams of abundance flow. Or it may be in the desert place, the wilderness. You may walk with the sun shining down on you, when the world is all as it should be. Or you may walk on the road marked with suffering. In all probability, you will walk all of those paths. But the key thing is this, on whatever path you find yourself now, Jesus calls you to follow him. Jesus called you forward. Don't let your past failures rob you of the mission that God has for you. Don't believe the lie that you're doomed to fail again just because you failed once before.
And even if you do fail the second time, or the third, or the, fir or the fourth, then fail on. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that you don't let regret for the past. Regret for your past failures poison your present and poison your future. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, you have a mission. You can do it. You follow me. May you hear his voice today and follow 